Some call me Steve, Dad, Husband or Friend. Others might call me Boss, Coach or Mentor. Today you can call me the Leadership Hacker. Thanks for listening in, I really appreciate it. My job as the Leadership Hacker is to hack into the minds, experiences, habits and learning of great leaders, C-suite executives, authors and development experts so that I can assist you developing your understanding and awareness of leadership. I'm Steve Rush and I'm your host today. I'm the author of Leadership Cake, I'm a transformation consultant and leadership coach and can't wait to start sharing all things leadership with you. On the show today is Greg Orme. He's the author of the business book of the year for 2020, The Human Edge. Before we get a chance to speak with Greg, it's a leadership hacker news. In the news today, we explore what age do we really start to develop entrepreneurial spirit? Well, spirit can happen quite early, but according to combined studies of the Duke University, the Kaufman Foundation, the Founder Institute and the Northwestern, the average age of an entrepreneur is actually 40 years old when launching his or her first startup. And the average age of leaders of high growth startups is 45. Whilst tech media is rife with stories of successful 20-somethings founding their first billionaire empire, the truth is that 40-somethings are much more likely to start companies and succeed. Adio Ressi, founder of the Founder Institute, developed research that shows that the older age is actually a better predictor for entrepreneurial success. The research in question isn't small-scale either. To get the data, the Founder Institute tracked 3,000 global applicants, examined in detail thousands of organisations, 1,000 enrolled founders and tracked 350 of their graduates. So do we think that age really helps? According to Ressi, older individuals have generally completed more complex projects from buying houses, raising a family, and in addition, older people have developed greater vocational skills than their younger counterparts. We theorise that the combination of successful project completion skills with real-world experience helps older entrepreneurs identify and address more realistic business outcomes and opportunities. This is borne out not only by research, which shows amongst other things that people over 55 are twice as likely to launch high-growth startups than those under 35, but by scanning just a quick list of successful entrepreneurs. Ray Kroc was 52 when he shaped McDonald's into the multi-billion global organisation that it is. Sam Walton was 44 when he started a small little company called Walmart. Linda Weinman co-founded Linda.com at 40 and subsequently sold that to LinkedIn for 1.5 billion and not a 20-something among them. The fact is innovation culture suggests that it's more trendy and more youth orientated and it's not as cool for older folk. Now this leadership mindset can be limiting for all. It can frame older individuals by making them feel useless or expired once they fit a certain age and can also hold back younger people by making them feel that they haven't achieved or they failed if they haven't founded their next big social media platform by the time they're 21. And of course, young people can become successful entrepreneurs for sure. But it's extremely misleading to believe that this is the norm. So if you haven't hit your first million and you're in your 30s and 40s and 50s, there's still hope yet. And our next story shows that entrepreneurial leadership has got no age boundaries. 
The Utah Highway Patrol said a trooper conducting a traffic stop on a suspected impaired driver instead found a five-year-old driver seeking to purchase a Lamborghini. The Highway Patrol said in a Twitter post that a trooper conducted a traffic stop in Weber County on what he thought was an impaired driver, but the driver of the vehicle turned out to be a five-year-old boy who'd made off with his parents' car. The boy who was pulled over at the 25th Street off-ramp of the southbound Interstate 15 told the trooper that he'd taken his parents' car after getting into an argument with his mother who told him she would not buy him a Lamborghini. He decided to take his entrepreneurial spirit to the next level and head off in her car in search of that Lamborghini. The child told the trooper that he did intend indeed to drive to California to buy the luxury vehicle for himself and his mum would not get in his way. The only downfall is he had $3 in his wallet. That's been the Leadership Hacker News. If you have any news, insights or information, please get in touch with us and share your stories. Our guest today sparks creativity and business innovation in a fast-paced changing world. He is the author of The Human Edge, which has just been awarded the Business Book of the Year for 2020. It's Greg Ulm. Greg, welcome to the Leadership Hacker podcast. Well, I'm delighted to be here, Steve. Thanks for thanks for inviting me. It's absolutely our pleasure. And congratulations, by the way, on winning the Business Book of the Year. Fantastic achievement. I'm sure you've been delighted with that. It's just been fantastic. Really game-changing for the book uh, and something that's it's just I'm really proud of. It's, it's just been wonderful. And so you should be. <laughs> thanks. So before becoming an author, you started off your career in the TV world, right? Yes. Tell us a little bit about the journey to here. Well, as a journo, I was, I was, a, I was a young journalist list all the way back in the 1990s. My careers advisor at school advised me that uh, it was not a good idea to go into journalism. And of course, of course, I, that's the only thing I wanted to do then. <laughs> so so uh, yes, I, I clambered my way up from local newspapers, the Solihull Times to the Birmingham Evening Mail to uh, the Nationals down in, in London and, and then then into television. And how did the television bit come about? What did that give you in terms of foundations for what you do now? Well, it's, it's really funny, you know, because uh, right now in, you know, well, obviously we're speaking when the world has gone virtual. Uh, and so I'm doing a lot more webinars and sort of virtual presentations. And so the production of those really goes all the way back to producing television news because I was a, a young producer on London Tonight, which it was the, the local television news there. And then with ITN and ITV and, and also along the way with the BBC. So, you know, taking stories, really boiling them down to what the nuggets are, then deciding what format to use and writing scripts around it. It's all the stuff that you do when you're presenting, you know, uh, virtual webinars and that kind of thing. So I've come full circle. It's it's really quite strange. So fantastic foundations, given that when you were starting out your career, you probably hadn't realised the importance of calling upon them at a later date. Well, you never do, do you? Uh, you, you never know where your, your skills will take you. But Actually, as a facilitator of face-to-face workshops and, and, you know, I've facilitated boards of directors as well uh, in my work on organizational change with the, with straight with organizations and, and via uh, organizations such as the London Business School and Duke C and various others. I found that idea of what a journalist does, which is to learn, ask interesting questions and then summarize and, and kind of guide a conversation 
has helped me all the way through my career. So, uh, yes, it's it's become really pertinent now, but I've always relied on those journalistic skills, actually. Communication's at the heart of everything we do, particularly when we're leading businesses, right? Yes. I mean, it's really central. I mean, our, my work now is sort of sits astride organisational change, but it's really working with the leaders that drive that change and that catalyze it. And, and if you think about what leadership is, Steve, it, it's really... Leadership is effectively communication and influence, especially in non-hierarchical organizations, which they increasingly are. It's, it's your ability to move people through your communication. So it's separate to management, which is establishing what's going on and making sure there's some kind of consistency. Being a leader is all about communication. So even though I've not been a communication consultant for many, many years, um, Really, leadership is, the, is at the heart of the work I do with organisations and the people that run them. Right. And given that you started out in journalism, you ended up in a leadership role and several leadership roles yourself and executive uh, roles. How did that transition take place for you? Well, th that came about because um, I, I went back to London Business School. They asked me back uh, after I'd done my executive MBA to go back to be the founding C uh, CEO for a thing called the Centre for Creative Business and that was um, a joint venture between London Business School and the big art schools, uh, the University of the Arts London, uh, which has sort of a number of different art schools and fashion houses. And the, the idea was we were exporting kind of MBA thinking from uh, London Business School to creative businesses because the British government wanted more tax revenues from our creative sector and we were part of that. So that's how it started in terms of that was an executive role running and growing that. And then after that came to an end after four years, because we had four years of funding, I then was an interim CEO with a, a large uh, recruiting and HR services business called Randstad uh, and Randstad and Vedio, their sort of global businesses. And I was one, a CEO of one of their businesses in the UK. So, yes, I had some experience at the front line, which is invaluable when I'm helping people in similar situations. So during that time as CEO of a couple of businesses and, and getting into the world of creativity and innovation and new thinking, that was when you started your first book, Spark. So how did that come about? Well, the Spark was, it goes back to that idea of the Centre for Creative Business. Uh, and so the question that was, that was often being asked, which is what can creative businesses, if we were sort of exporting MBA thinking to creative businesses, and it, it struck me that there was an interesting reverse uh, of that question, reversing the polarity, if you like, to ask what can creative businesses, sort of the likes of advertisers and TV production companies and design houses and architects, teach the rest of the world in terms of how they maintain an atmosphere of creativity in their organizations. So it was, I always think if you write a business book, you should have a central question that you're trying to answer. And the question there was, you know, what can creative businesses teach the rest of the world? And so I, that's, that's what the spark is. It's, it's how do you create a, a culture of creativity? How do you have behaviors of leadership? Because in most of the research that's gone into creativity in organizations, and I mean all organizations, not just ones that call themselves creative, is that the sad thing is that creativity gets killed more often than it's encouraged just by the rules and regulations of business. 
So it's uh, it's it's something that you have to protect and nurture. In my experience as a coach and uh, and leading businesses too, one of the biggest things I find about creativity is often that when you're more extroverted and you're able to kind of demonstrate and showcase creativity, it's more noticeable. But actually, there is an inordinate amount of learning to be had from people who are less obviously creative, who but equally have the same level of thinking and creativity and creative flair, if you like. How, how, how do you go about enabling that in people who are maybe more introverted? Yeah, I, I, absolutely. I'm not sure uh, it's been about introversion and extroversion for me. Uh, you know, looking at the research, I think introverted people can be just as creative as extroverted people. You probably just won't hear their ideas as, as readily. Uh, what's really interesting for me is that creativity is one of those words that's very exclusive. It's often thought of as for geniuses or for artistic people or for a certain type of person, whereas the reality is we are all born creative. And then the culture of our schools, sadly, and also the culture of our businesses kind of beat it out of us. Uh, we realize that our creative thinking is not as welcome as we thought it might be. So there's a lot of really interesting research uh, that shows that, you know, if you if you do a creativity tests like the Torrance test on kids that are five years old, something like 98% of them score very highly in their ability to apply divergent thinking, which is a foundational stone of creativity. By the time we're 15, that's gone down to 30%. And by the time we're in the workplace, it's down to 12, 5, 2%. And so it's our environment that knocks it out of us. So my, in effect, I'm on a mission with both of my books, really, to try and help everybody to rediscover their creativity, not just the chosen few. That's really interesting statistics, isn't it? It's almost we've unlearned how to be creative by the environment through school, education, work and forced parameters around our behavior. Yeah. Yeah. Well, unlearning is a really good word for it. In fact, George Land, who did the original study on this, who came up with these really rather depressing statistics, that was the conclusion of his report after 20 years of studying this cohort of American school children that went, then went into the American um, work environment, was that um, if your creative thinking um, is you know, the, the, effectively you unlearn it from your environment. Well, anything that can be unlearned can be relearned. So that's the silver lining from this, that actually you can rediscover your creativity because it's, as well as being a skill, it's an attitude. You know, you really can step back into your creativity. And, uh, and that's a personal, that's been a personal journey for me. Uh, and also I, I, it's a personal mission for me to help other people do that because it, it's life-changing and it's really reassuring for those people who are listening to this who maybe think i'm not as creative as i'd like to be well we've probably got all of those foundations somewhere tucked away at the back of our brain we just need to pull them forward right yeah absolutely you know i, I like to think of it as this if creativity i was saying is this exclusive word up there that you know there's like a, a one of those red velvet ropes around so you can't come in <laughs> if you actually dig down to sub words that support it like curiosity questioning learning um, engaging, sparking two ideas together, talking to other people. We can all do these really simple things like questioning and learning. So if you can do that, our human brains are actually programmed to, to make connections, to do what psychologists call general thinking, uh, i.e. connecting things together. You can't help yourself. You just need to put the fuel and the energy into your brain and have the attitude and listen for the ideas that come and don't dispel them. We can all do it. 
That's excellent. I love that. So moving on to your work now. So Global Keynote Speaker facilitated hundreds of sessions across the globe for different organizations. And in parallel to that, have written your award-winning book, The Human Edge. What was the inspiration for book number two from where you left off with Spark? Yeah, well, you know, I was thinking it came sort of five and a half, six years later, and I'd done a lot of work uh, with a lot of big organizations in automotive and banking and all sorts of different places and had the had the benefit of traveling around the world and, and, and sort of being a fly on the wall in these offices. And so I started getting really interested in where is the workplace, the future going and what is the role of technology uh, and disruption particularly, because I think we're in a very disrupted environment. Of course, it's extremely disrupted now with COVID-19, but it was happening before that with artificial intelligence and datification uh, and new generations coming into the workplace and new digital tribes online and obviously the environmental crisis that we're all battling with. So we're in a very unstable environment. So I started talking a lot about the technological angle of that. And I actually was making a keynote at London Business School. I'd gone back for an alumni event. And one of the executives, a lady came up to me after I'd finished my uh, speech and said, that's all very well talking about how technology and machines are changing organizations. But what really occurs to me, you're going on about artificial intelligence and how it's going to change the world. Where does that leave me in terms of the skills that I need to survive and thrive in this in this world? And what about my daughters? You know, what should I be telling them to study and 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 become? And so I thought it was a really interesting question, and I didn't really have the answer. Uh, that was about four years ago, and uh, from there I started exploring what I thought were the answers to that question, and that became the human edge, which is to me. How do you become more human in a world of machines and disruption in order to make the most of what you've got to future-proof your own career? Got it. And it's really interesting when I look at how the world has changed over the last 10 or 15 years, there is genuinely a threat or a perceived threat by many people around the world of robotics and AI and how that's impacting. And I think you call that the human challenge in your book, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that was... I think that's gone away a little bit now because I think we've all started to see, I think it's still there. And that's where the the debate was three or four years ago. It was human versus machine. What's going to happen? And of course, actually, in the same way, there's another trend. We've become a lot less trustful of our tech companies. Uh, Our social media companies, we don't trust the ones on the West Coast. We've got Uber, which had a lot of scandals. And then we've got the Chinese uh, unicorn and tech companies that are sort of veiled in secrecy. So generally, tech is not what it was. (laughs) And also there's AI, which is, quote unquote, taking our jobs. I think what I discovered in the book is for most people in the knowledge work industry, AI is not going to take your job, not anytime soon. What will happen is it will cheese slice away the algorithmic routine parts of your job, leaving you a space, and this will happen over the next five to 10 years, leaving you a space in which to apply your own humanity, what differentiates you from machines. So that's an opportunity as well as a threat. Uh, And so that's what the book is about. It's taking that opportunity and really, really using your, what I call human superpowers. And for me, it really is an opportunity, but many people could be in that threat space because there is this 
if I let go of some of the routine tasks, I might be redundant versus the mindset that says, no, it gives you more space for creativity and new ways of working. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, just to be clear, I, and I'm sad to say this, I don't relish in, in bringing this news that there will be some job types that will go completely. I think, you know, if you're a long distance lorry driver, uh, and that's, of course, autonomous driving, but it's really a subset of AI that will probably go sometimes, or, or a lot of those jobs will go, not all of them, uh, because obviously driving in the city centre is far more complex than driving down a motorway. So there'll be some types of driving that will go. There'll be some types, uh, anything that's effectively, if you can write down all the data that, and the decisions in any job type uh, and then feed it into a machine learning AI, it'll probably get automated sometime in the next sort of five, six, seven years. But I think that's a small portion of jobs. Most jobs, as I say, will be cheese sliced. And re really what's left is what we do that machines can't. So, you know, we have a sense of humor. <laughs> we have empathy. We can think generally. Uh, we can collaborate together. We can ask the next question rather than answering the last one. So that's curiosity. So this is why I came up with the idea of these four C's of the superpowers. In, in the same way that I wanted to demystify creativity, I'm hoping I can demystify all three, four of these C's and, and help people to, to develop them because they are skills that you can practice and get better at. And the book, uh, The Human Edge, is about how we use our creativity and our curiosity. And you call them superheroes in our digital economy. And I really love that kind of principle. And during the reading the book, you have bunches and bunches of hacks. Often referred, you refer to them as dance steps, actually. But let's get into the four C's. I think it'd be really helpful to go through how the four C's of the Human Edge work together. So the first of the four C's is consciousness. And you say that's the gateway to the other four C's. What's the reason that that sits as the gateway? Well, just to explain the structure of it, there are four C's. And under each of the four C's, there are two what I call dance steps that you mentioned. The I call them dance steps because you can sort of, just like a dance step, you can learn one step and then kind of do them in any order. They're not really linear. I don't think creative thinking is a particularly linear thing. However, there is an order, which is why I've done it in the order I have, of consciousness, curiosity, creativity, collaboration. And the order is this. I think that's the order of kind of ideation or allowing yourself to be creative. And under consciousness, I have uh, the idea of finding work meaningful and I also have the idea of focus, being able to direct your attention and find islands of time in which you can devote to your own curiosity and creativity. So the reason that's first is if you don't have the motivation to step forward and be courageous enough to be creative, you won't do it because it's an effort and it also implies failure. Uh, creativity always has failure as a component of it. And the other part, the other dance step under um, consciousness is this idea of focus. And that's really about organizing your day in order or an average day in order to find time to be curious and creative. Because, and, and so just to summarize that, my, my favorite quote on this is create, um, creative minds may think like artists, but they work like accountants. And what I'm, what I'm getting at there is that you really need to concentrate and focus in order to find the time to do it. Otherwise, you end up just chasing your tail in the world that we're in, the very distracted world in which we're in now. That's a great analogy and one I think can resonate with most people as they're listening. 
So Curiosity is an XC, and that runs through the other Cs. And I particularly like the reference that you use around questions of the hallmark for leadership in our century. How did that come about? Yeah, so, so if your consciousness effectively gives you the motivation and the time, Curiosity, I think of as is uh, the fuel for creativity. And, and the, I think of the four Cs, Steve, as, you know, they're all equal apart from they're not. <laughs> creativity, a bit like the British Prime Minister. They sometimes say the British Prime Minister is the first amongst equals. I think of creativity as the first amongst the Cs because curiosity and consciousness allow you to be creative. Collaboration allows you to then take the ideas that come out of creativity and do something with them. So curiosity is really important for me because, and, it, and the two dance steps are learning and questioning. Learning because actually you need to keep pushing yourself forward. And we know ideas come from when, they, when, when notions and concepts jump barriers between two different domains of knowledge. So you need to push yourself to learn outside of your specialisms. And then what happens is you get these wonderful serendipitous connections across boundaries in which uh, ideas happen. So that's really, really important. I, I mean, you know, we, we can all think of examples of that. So for example, Google uh, brings together the idea of academic citations with what was at the time this newfangled thing called the World Wide Web. And, and that's what uh, Google came from. So you, you need the learning to, as the fuel and, and the questioning helps you to challenge the world around you constantly, which, again, leads you to see it and frame it in different ways. And when you talk about creativity as part of your forces, you state within the book that, you know, consciousness and curiosity give you the framework or the, they set up success or they set up creativity. And what particularly struck me within that is that you talk about luck as being a skill. And I wondered, you know, if we think about skills are refined and they're practiced and we, we get better at them or not, as the case may be, through practice. How do you practice at getting lucky? Yeah, well, I, I use that because it's a particularly provocative statement, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> you know, how do you practice being lucky? But well, I think the, the point is that a lot of people, if you ask them, where do you have your ideas? They, they say, well, they sort of come to me, you know, I'm, I'm on a bike ride or I'm running or I might be in the shower. And they see this as a lucky moment, this, this moment, this so-called aha moment. And I really found in my research about creativity is the aha moment, even though it's, it's got great PR, you know, you can think of a hundred aha moments, the apple dropping on someone's head or whatever it might be. What's much more important is the preparation that leads up to that aha moment. And that's what I mean about luck is a skill. You can actually work on the things that will bring you aha moments. Uh, and uh, what I do is put a lot of practical ideas in the book of, of what you can do to work on that. Got it. So the whole consciousness of being creative replays back in there, doesn't it? It's, it's taking those unconscious thoughts and thinking and bringing them to the conscious. Yeah, well, absolutely. And one of the things I say is pay attention. Pay attention not only to the world around you. Look for the unexpected things that happen. A lot of the times, don't you find we, we, we can spend our lives on autopilot? You know, we're driving the car. We weren't even aware we were driving and we, we suddenly 25 minutes later, we're somewhere else. You know, it's about consciously from time to time paying attention to the world around you because that's where you get your ideas from. And also listening to your own thoughts, being self-aware because actually your subconscious brain often whispers to you ideas and sometimes you can miss them if you're, you're not paying attention. And there are a hundred different other ways that creative people 
who make their living from coming up with ideas. And in a way, I make my living from coming up from idea, with ideas and, and putting them into books. Actually, they practice these habits every day to make sure they've got a store of new ideas coming. I mean, one of them is to literally waste nothing. Waste nothing when you read or you look at a painting. Have some way of collecting lots of things around you that you can go back to uh, as a store of ideas. For example, I use Evernote. I don't know if you use this online way. So whenever I'm reading something online, I can tag it. It goes into my Evernote store. And it's just kind of like having a brainstorm with a former self when I go through the things I've read. So, you know, there are there are lots of different habits that creative people use to ensure that they they get lucky more often. That's some really neat ideas. And of course, the luckier you become, the more successful you become. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, and, you know, as long as you keep practicing these habits, I mean, another one is to understand that our brain doesn't just work on its own. It's part of a system within our body. So if you want to operate at peak performance and be creative, which is one of our higher functions, you have to make sure that you're fit, that you have time off, you have time to play, you get good sleep. Sleep is incredibly important and the research around sleep now and its connections with creativity is absolutely compelling. So in the book, if people come in there, they'll, they'll find something they can do every day that will just, you know, incrementally build up those create those curiosity and creativity muscles. And it is habit forming, isn't it? It's not one of those things you can just do in isolation. It has to be repeated and repeated and repeated so that you're laying down those neurological pathways to create those tactile foundations. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's fantastic. You've mentioned the brain there and, and uh, neuroscience because you know, as someone who's, who's used applied psychology in my work for many years, I'm so excited now that we can actually have some hard science in there as well. <laughs> no offense to psychologists, but neuroscientists can show you which part of the brain is is lighting up. And, and what's really interesting to me in terms of creativity and exploration, curiosity, that releases a, a neurotransmitter called dopamine. And dopamine is, is, you know, called the motivation molecule is something that wants, it, it makes you want to get up and go. Uh, and the light side of dopamine is if you can release it, it makes you want to do something which releases more dopamine. So as you were saying, uh, Steve, it, it's a, it's a virtuous circle. So, you know, if you can release this dopamine when you're exploring and you're curious, you'll want to do more of it. And as you say, it just gets more and more and more. And then you surround yourself with more creative people. You do more creative things. And then it becomes not just a choice. It becomes a kind of a lifestyle. Almost a battery that refuels itself on that journey too. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, if you just take one aspect of this, I was talking about how curiosity underpins creativity. And I think, you know, people should stop aiming at creativity. It's like aiming at happiness. It's completely pointless. You know, what you have to do is aim at the things that take you there by a circuitous route. Curiosity is the best route. I think that, that's the motorway to get into creativity. And what we know about the uh, curiosity is it's like a muscle. So if you use your curiosity, if you're asking questions, if you're surrounded by creative, uh, curious people, you will be more curious. And if you don't, your muscles won't get bigger and stronger. They will, they will waste away. Uh, and so be really careful about the people you're hanging out with, the things you're reading, the things you're watching, the podcasts you're subscribed to. How are you getting your new knowledge? That's what's feeding this desire to find out more. 
And in the spirit of curiosity, your last C is collaboration. This is around building a network of human collaborators. Now, for most people listening to this, they'll be going, yeah, that's pretty obvious. Surround myself with a bunch of people who can help me. But what are the dance steps you've got here for collaboration? Yeah. Well, collaboration is is the, the umbrella term for use it, but I get quite specific with the two dance steps. Uh, so, so the first dance step is this idea of networking. Now, it may be uh, sound straightforward, but I find a lot of people don't attend to their network. They see something networking, something kind of you know, like recruiters do. <laughs> it's not, it's a little bit oily and, uh, you know, kind of business-like, but really it's about connecting to like-minded individuals and not just a small group of them. We, we all have so-called Dunbar's number, which is the amount of people in our sort of close network. But really it's about connecting to a much wider group because there is great uh, research data to show if you have a wide, shallow network as well as uh, some close colleagues, it's it's in that wide, shallow network of people away from you. That's where you'll get your new ideas. In addition to that, you always have someone to take your new ideas to to get feedback because honestly, most people's ideas are not very good. Even the most creative people, they have a lot. If you can have a large portfolio of ideas, and by the way, that's the best way to be creative. Stop working on one idea, work on quite a few at the same time. Then you want to try and improve them. And the best way to improve them is to take them up to other people and get some honest feedback on it. So it's having this and developing and consciously, intentionally developing the network around you. That's that's incredibly important. Getting data for your creative, curious ideas is incredibly important because we come with our own biases, don't we? So how do we, how do we make sure that that's the right data that we've got? All you can do, uh, say, say for example, you know, when I'm writing uh, my books, I have a group of, you know, 12 people or so who are really trusted colleagues who know the marketplace I'm writing for, have written themselves. So I kind of just trust their, I don't take it as read. I don't take it as like, oh, I must change that because they said this, but I'll really, really closely listen to them. Um, so I think it's a matter of understanding who you're going to for what in terms of getting feedback and then honoring their feedback and just kind of keeping it in mind and, and choosing the stuff that you really need. Because what I, I think one of the most compelling um, kind of insights that I actually found in this book and I didn't realize before is we know that creative superstars have something like 80% of the really, really good ideas. So, you know, you've got to ask yourself in, in all sorts of domains, uh, mathematics and cooking and art and filmmaking and whatever it may be, why are these people having so many good ideas? And the reality is they're not. What they're having is more ideas. Creative people just generally have cottoned on that if you have more ideas, you will then have more to choose from. I think the follow-up to that is even more fascinating that even the most creative people have been proven they don't even know which of their ideas will work in the real world. They have to try them out and get feedback on them. And the trying out is the second dance step I have in collaboration, which is the idea of having an experimental approach. What does that experimental approach entail? Being experimental is the idea of saying, taking an idea and saying, well, what is the shortest possible route of, of least investment in time and money and risk to find out if this works in the real world? So it's really 
it's kind of, it's trying things out, but in a much more structured and scientific way. It's actually a concept that has been well promoted and, and used from the West Coast in the tech industry, because of course you can release software with very little risk and see if it works. Uh, and so it's, Bringing that approach into your life and thinking it can be as simple as a behavioral change or a new idea. How can I just get some evidence of whether this works or not? So you, you set up a hypothesis, you try something that you examine what happens and then you pivot and move again rather than saying, I love this idea. This is what's going to be the rest of my life, investing you all your gold and time and fortune into it. And then 12 months later, finding out it wasn't a very good idea at all. It's about really doing things very rapidly. The world's moving so quickly, isn't it? By the time we've kind of got our idea implemented, ready to go, we could be late. We could have missed the opportunity entirely. Yeah, I mean, and that's the other risk. That, I mean, the first risk I was talking exactly was, you know, it's the wrong idea. Or, or it's, the, it's more probably it's the wrong version of the right idea, <laughs> or it could be that um, you, you missed your opportunity because you didn't get the first draft in the marketplace. Although I have to say, Steve, I think, you know, if you think about the alternative, which is the more corporate way of doing things, which is say, we've got a great idea, we're going to boil the ocean, we're going to put three million in this, and we're going to make it happen. And that's the sort of strategic approach. That's actually probably faster in the long run. But if you think about it, much, much more risky. Because you've kind of made the assumption something will work and you put a lot of money behind it. I, you know, personally, I prefer to, to not lose money on bad ideas. So that's why I think experimentation might be slightly slower because you're pivoting and moving and learning and pivoting and moving, but it actually is a better way of reaching a really good product or a really good outcome for an idea. I'm with you. So now the Human Edge has won the Business Book of the Year for 2020. That's available for everybody to access, download, paperback. But what's next for you? Well, obviously, kind of my my life splits into speaking uh, and writing, effectively. So on the speaking and the sessions front, I, you know, obviously I'm now delivering lots of uh, workshops, both online and off, based on the insights in the Human Edge, and that's really exciting. Um, so there's, there's that. That's the sort of kind of applying the knowledge that I've already got. In terms of what's next, in terms of writing, I don't know. <laughs> I'm looking at all sorts of different uh, things. I'm very interested in communication. As you were saying at the start of our, our discussion, you know, I was a, a journalist at one point. I've always used communication right at the heart of what I do. So I'm kind of mulling ideas about how could I bring a new uh, angle to communication. And that's kind of interesting to me. But I'm really looking for questions, you know, coming back to the theme of ask better questions. I'm always thinking, how can I ask a better question? And I'll know when I've got a, a good question, I'll start, start pursuing it with this experimental approach and, and see what comes from that. Perfect opportunity for experiments, though. Exactly. Uh, what you don't want to do, I, I found, Steve, I don't really trust the ideas I bring back off bike rides. I ride my bike around the lanes here in, in Warwickshire, and I get sort of high on endorphins about 45 minutes into the ride and have a load of ideas come back, and I just think they're the best things ever. And I always write them down and think I'll leave them for a couple of days because when I come down <laughs> off my endorphin high, I often find they're not very good at all. Uh, and so it's about not investing too early in your ideas and having enough of them. And so I guess having enough questions is, 
rather than getting obsessed by one straight away. But then following through when, that, and that's the writing process of when you've actually got the question, you've established it's a good one, then you really need to focus. Well, we wish you best with what happens next, Greg. So at this part of the show, we've become familiar with me hacking into the minds of our guests. And I'd just like to get a sense from you as if you were able to distill some of your dance steps, some of your experiences as a leader, what would be your top leadership hacks you could share with our listeners? Oh, that's a good question. The first one would be, and I've already said it, but, you know, I just re-emphasize it for people. I think it's the, the, the heart of good leadership. I think it's really the cornerstone of good creativity as well is see if you can ask more and better questions every day. I think that's a, a great leadership technique. Um, because it sort of sends, it not only sends a signal that you are curious in the world, it liberates other people to come into the conversation. It's a great way of really energizing a team. So I'd say ask better questions. Secondly, I'd say, and I've become very interested, and I do write about it in the in the Human Edge a little bit, uh, and I've become more interested, even since the book's been published, in the science that underpins humor and fun. I'd say if, to leaders in organizations, um, you should be bringing humor and fun into the dynamic of your team because it helps enormously with um, cutting through in terms of your communication. It supports creativity and, it, of course, it supports cooperation. If you can make someone smile, they trust you. And that's what's needed uh, more in companies now than ever. Uh, and generally, I, I would echo the, the thrust of the human edge. Uh, and my third one is if you're a leader, don't forget to drop the mask every now and then and show your authentic self, show your humanity, because I think people need that from their leaders. Uh, and obviously you can't keep doing it. You have to, leadership is, is to some extent a performance art, but I think people want to see a, a, a theme of humanity and authenticity in what you're doing. So drop the mask. Bring your humanity to work, I say. Great advice. Thank you. You're welcome. I'd now like to get inside and find out what your hack to attack is. And what that means is a period in your life or your work where something hasn't worked out as you'd expected. Maybe it's screwed up. Maybe it's failed miserably. But as a result of that experience, we now use that in our life and our work as something positive. What would be your hack to attack? Steve, you know I do a lot of public speaking um, uh, and keynote speaking. Well, in the early part of my career, I, I, I was asked to give a speech uh, and it was a kind of a more relaxed, informal kind of after dinner type thing. And so I thought, you know, I don't want to ruin my ability to be in the moment and kind of react to it. So I, I won't over prepare. I won't kill the magic, as it were. And I and I went along to give my speech. And of course, as soon as I stood up in front of a couple of hundred people, my you know, your brain works in a very different way when you're up there. And I couldn't, you know, I didn't really have it there at my fingertips. And I kind of realized in that moment, and since I've, I've really researched how other people do it and, and, and looked at it, and I've realized that actual preparation does not put you in the straitjacket. Being absolutely prepared when you're doing presentations and public speaking, actually counterintuitively, it, it releases you to be in the moment because you've got a very solid structure. And so you can only leave a plan if you have a plan in the first place. So I find now when I deliver speeches, I kind of know what I'm saying down to 
literally 20, 25 second segments. I don't have a script because nobody can remember a script for, for long periods of time, but I really know what I'm going to say. And that allows me to kind of, uh, you know, leave those series of bullet points because I know it's very solid underneath me. So yeah, I prepare in, in, in a really rigorous way for what I'm doing and it really helps. Super learning and preparation is foundation. So making sure that what you execute is executed in the way that you intend. Absolutely. You know, and, and as, as I said, it, it makes me laugh now because people still say to me, oh, I'm going to do this presentation. I'm going to, I'm going to wing it because I want it to be really fresh. And, uh, you know, in my view, or maybe just me, but, you know, in my view, that's the wrong way to go. You need to be really super prepared. And then you can, you can actually people uh, think you're making it up as you go along because you're so well prepared. Uh, but it's the preparation that allows for that serendipitous moments to happen. And the last thing we'd like to explore with you, Greg, is if you're able to do a bit of time travel, bump into the Greg at 21, what would be the best bit of advice that you would give Greg at that time? Cool. There's so much I'd like to say to the 21-year-old me, which is a very, sadly, a very, very long time ago now. I think um, I only started writing quite late, really, sort of seven, eight years ago. I, I, I wasn't writing back then. I'd say to that person, because I, and I'm probably, I'm sure the 21-year-old me would not have had the confidence to think that I, he would go on to write, uh, you know, award-winning business books. So I'd just say, write, write every day. Don't worry about what it's going to become or what it is, but just make sure every day you get 500 words down on something. Because what I've really discovered now, I have written, uh, you know, business books and other, and other pieces and magazine articles and, and created products is actually you don't know what it is until you start. So you just got to get going. And, and in the mess is actually where you discover the good stuff. So I'd say just do it. Just make sure you're whatever your creative output is. And for anybody out there, whether you're a writer or whatever else you do, just do it every day because you'll find your ideas in that mess. Awesome advice. Thanks, Greg. So as folks are listening to this, they're probably thinking, I've heard a lot about the human edge. We know it's got awards. How do I get hold of a copy? Well, you know, uh, it's on Amazon. It's on, oh, crikey, every online bookseller that it is. It, it's, uh, it, it was until recently in the WH Smith travel stores. I'm not sure if it's still there. I haven't, I haven't been out of my house for quite some time. But the best place to get it is online. Uh, if you put in The Human Edge by Greg Orm, you'll find it on Amazon very, very quickly or, or somewhere else if you, if you prefer to uh, shop with someone else. And of course, if people want to become part of my network, I'm constantly releasing videos and snippets and blogs all the time. I'm very active on LinkedIn and you can find me at Greg Orm. Also, to a certain extent at Twitter, and uh, I think I'm at Gregory Orm on there. Or you can go to my website, which is uh, gregorm.org. We'll also make sure, Greg, that we put details of how to access your book and all your social media sites in our show notes and on our website too. So as folks have listened to this, they can click in and follow you straight away. Fantastic. Well, it's just been a fantastic conversation with you. I've really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for being on the Leisure Packer podcast, Greg. It's been super and a massive congratulations from us and our team on your superb award and good luck with whatever the future holds for you. No, oh, thank you, Stephen. Same to you. Cheers. Time out of your day to listen in too. We do this in the service of helping others and spreading the word of leadership. Without you listening in, there would be no show. So please subscribe now if you haven't done so already. Share this podcast with your communities and network and help us develop a community and a tribe of leadership hackers.
And finally, if you'd like me to work with your senior team, your leadership community, keynote an event, or you would like to sponsor an episode, please connect with us via our social media. And you can do that by following and liking our pages on Twitter and Facebook. Our handle there is at Leadership Hacker. Instagram, you can find us there at the underscore leadership underscore hacker. And at YouTube, we're just Leadership Hacker. So that's me signing off. I'm Steve Rush, and I've been the Leadership.